The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your willingness to draw near and show yourself to us. And we just, we just sang asking you to do that, to show us Christ, to show us God made flesh to come dwell in our midst. He is here now in spirit among us, and I pray, Lord, open our eyes and cause us to see him, and thank you that you are willing to do that, that you want to do that, that you're more eager for that to happen than we are. So please do that. Show him to us, and even show him to us in the midst of a challenging subject this morning. Show him to us as we listen to him teach us. Show us his character. Show us his heart. Show us his wisdom and his authority. Show us his goodness. Show us his grace. Reveal him. And reveal us, too. Lead us into this place where we are are broken that we might be built up, convicted that we might be comforted. So teach this morning, Lord, we pray. Cause your spirit to move through the room here and, and give, give a clarity to this word and draw near in comfort also, Lord. So we ask, ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When my parents got divorced during my junior high years, part of what was uncomfortable and a bit awkward about that was that I did not know anybody else who was divorced. Now, I grew up in a small town, so maybe that's a small sample pool, but I had 50 classmates that I'd known my whole life, and I didn't know a single one of them to be from a divorced family. What junior higher can say that today? Times have changed. You don't need to know the statistics to know that. It's, divorce is all around us. Divorce has touched this world in every place. It's in, it's in all of our families. It's, it's here in the sanctuary. And whether it was our parents or our kids or ourselves even, we're all marked by it in some way or another. It's left a mark on us some mix of pain or anger or regret or guilt or sorrow, somehow. And so right out of the gate, a a sermon with the title Divorce and Adultery might be setting off some alarm bells. Might be kind of, uh, creating that kind of of a feeling out there. And in a way, that's appropriate. What we're doing here is we're just following Jesus passage by passage as he preaches this sermon that we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. We're just following him passage by passage, sticking right with him, and part of what he's doing is trying to sound an alarm to make us all a little... He's he's trying to bring out what he was actually saying when he gave the law. He's the king of God's kingdom. He's God in flesh. And so he is often 
dealing with something that he needs to clarify, some bit of God's word, some truth that he needs to clear up. And often that is alarming. It's hard to hear, hard to accept, and we kind of instinctively want to hold it at arm's length. The clarity that Jesus brings can be crushing. But it's not meant to leave us crushed, but in fact it's meant to leave us comforted. We talked about all of this last week the beginning of last week's sermon, and it applies again because he's about the same thing again. Last week we looked back at the Beatitudes, particularly the second one, that that pointed out the connection between conviction on sin that leaves us mourning over sin, but not to leave us mourning, but it's meant to bring us to this place where broken we say, God, help, and we look for him to bring a righteousness from outside of us that actually brings a cleansing, brings a healing, brings a renewing, brings us into the presence of God, brings us into the comfort and joy that he means for us to know. So that last week, as he talked about how looking at a person, just looking at a person with lustful intent is adulterous. Breaks the second, the seventh commandment. And we're going to see that again, that same dynamic at work again this morning as he tells us that divorce is also adulterous. It also incurs the guilt of breaking the seventh commandment, being unfaithful in marriage, unfaithful to the marriage vows. Maybe not quite in the ways that you're thinking, so we'll We'll see if our common understanding is what Jesus means, but that's where we're going this morning. Jesus is teaching about divorce and adultery. It's it's stiff, but it's meant to lead to our comfort. So follow me through this all, all, through all of this. But before we get into it, a couple of general comments are probably in order. This passage this morning is not the only time that Jesus touches on divorce in the Gospel of Matthew. It comes up again later in chapter 19, and he has a lot more to say there. It's a longer passage there. So this morning, I'm not going to be saying everything about what Jesus addresses later. I'm going to try to hold to this passage here as much as possible and look at it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So as such, this is not going to be a large and thorough treatment of the topic of divorce. It's not going to be everything the Bible says about it. It's not going to be everything our church believes about it. And so I'm pretty certain that some question is going to be raised and not answered this morning. That's probably going to happen. And if, as that happens for you, if what's raised and not answered is important, because it's marked you in some way that's, that's important, then I encourage you and invite you, really, come talk, come talk, come talk. I'd love to talk about this, as would a lot of others in our church. We have a number of trained pastors and counselors in our church, women and men both, who would love to talk about this. If something's raised here this morning, I'll probably say this two or three more times, if something's raised here this morning that you say, I need to talk about that, come talk to me. There are also some women that you can talk to in our church that are trained and are able to deal with this. Come talk. With that, let me read the passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, and then we'll make two observations from those verses. So here's the verse. Jesus speaking, verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife 
except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Two observations. Here's the first. God's law about divorce was managing marital unfaithfulness, not condoning it. God's law about divorce was managing marital unfaithfulness, not condoning it, not approving of it. Verse 31 begins with the same sort of language that we've seen a couple times already and will come up again. So by this point, we should be kind of expecting a scenario in which we're going to find some teaching that Jesus' listeners, his, his audience, his followers, have heard something taught about the Old Testament scriptures that has reduced them and made them doable. If we try, but made them doable. So we feel pretty good about it. And then, as the pattern goes, Jesus is going to pop that bubble. That's what we should be expecting, and that is where this is going also. But the language here, this introductory language, is a bit shorter, and it includes the word also, because in some ways, this is the third topic that Jesus is addressing, but in some other ways, it's kind of like topic number two, part B. It's related to what he just said. It's different, but it's, it's connected. He's going to be discussing adultery again, like he did last week, but in a different way than what we saw him say about lust causing adultery in the heart. So, it was also said, he begins, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. The only passage in all of the five books of the Law of Moses that specifically addresses the topic of divorce. One passage. And that single passage then, because it's the only one that's expressly about divorce, it was debated a lot, tossed back and forth amongst teachers that day. They, they thought about it, they discussed it, they argued about it, they taught a lot about it. We'll, re, we'll read some more about that debate in Matthew 19 later. But here, with just a few details, Jesus is going to correct what they've heard about Deuteronomy. 24 verses 1 to 4 in Deuteronomy. If you were to look back at that, you would see the whole thing is one gigantic if-then statement. You can look back at it if you want to. It's, it's obvious. It's about a situation in which a man might be divorcing his wife. Because of the power dynamic of the society in that day, it would have been a man divorcing his wife, not the other way around. So it's about a man of course, today that could go either way, so we need to think about it a little bit differently, but it's going to be a man back then. And Jesus is going to speak to that, and this is important. Jesus is going to speak, and therefore he's popping the bubble of, Deuteronomy is speaking about, Jesus is going to pop the bubble of the one who is initiating the divorce. In that case, it's going to be a man. It could be either today. He's not speaking to the one who received the divorce the one who is divorced in a passive. That's what's going on. So, again, if you were to look at Deuteronomy, you'd see if a man does not like his wife anymore because he's found something indecent in her that he doesn't like, and if he then decides to divorce his wife, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, 
And if then she marries another man, and if then that man divorces her or that man dies, if, 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 then first husband cannot remarry her after she has been defiled like this. That's what it says. What's the point of all that? All the four, four verses of that one big statement. If after all of that, first husband, then you can't get her back. You've caused her to be defiled and you can't remarry her. And what is surely lost in our modern world, what's surely lost about that statement in our modern world is that that statement is very helpful to the woman. Very helpful to her who otherwise doesn't have power and might find herself passed around man to man to man to man to man according to the whim of all the men and defiled as she is traded. She can't really stop that because of how the society worked back then. And so the point of that passage is to stop or at least limit that abuse of the powerless, in this case, the powerless woman. That's the purpose. Clearly, it's a law aimed at managing a problem, not condoning it. God knows that given fallen humanity, wrong, immoral things will happen. That's all the if part of that sentence, if this and this and this and this. And God graciously wants to help manage the awful so as to limit the consequences, limit the pain if he can. God's actual stance on divorce is quite clear. This comes up again later in Matthew 19. Jesus says, what, it ha what happened at the very beginning when God made marriage back in Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of the Bible, and he made it one man to one woman, he said, the two shall become one. Jesus says, essentially, think about that. The two become one. God joined two together into one. Therefore, let not man separate that. God does not want marriage to lead to divorce. And then he chastises the men in the book of Malachi for breaking faith with their wives, for breaking the covenant vows of marriage. That's God's stance on marriage and divorce. He doesn't want it. And Deut Deuteronomy 24 is just managing the problem of divorce if and when it happens, not condoning it. We have to understand that from Deuteronomy if we're going to understand what is so challenging about Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Jesus' teaching in Matthew is greatly surprising. But you only get that if you, if you understand what Deuteronomy is actually saying. Because watch this. We're going to go back to Matthew now. This is Jesus getting ready to pop the bubble. Verse 31. You have heard that it was said. And what Jesus says they've heard said is not what Deuteronomy actually says. What they've heard said is teaching as if Deuteronomy is a guide as to how to get divorced properly. As if it read, 
when a man finds something indecent in his wife and decides to divorce her, here's how you do that right. Be sure to issue her a certificate of divorce. A witness legal document that says, this woman is divorced, this marriage is over, she can marry whoever she wants. Put that down in writing. When you get divorced, do it properly, justly. She's going to need that certificate because she's going to need to get remarried. So she's going to need to be able to prove that she can get remarried and that she's not just a woman who's been sent out. She actually is divorced. So divorce her in a way that is just to her, that lets her prove that she's eligible to be remarried. If you want to get divorced, do it right, and then you'll be righteous in God's eyes. That's how Deuteronomy was taught. When a man wants to get divorced, issue the certificate. File the papers, make it right. But I say to you, here comes the pop. That's not what I meant when I gave that law to Moses to give to you, says the king. I was managing your problem of divorce, not condoning it. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, unless there has already been sexual immorality of some sort in the marriage already, except on that ground, everyone who divorces his wife is responsible for making something awful happen. Not righteousness. You are responsible for making something awful happen. He leaves her defiled. That's what Deuteronomy said. He makes her commit adultery, says Jesus. Commit adultery is a passive verb there. She will need to eat. She will need a roof over her head. Maybe she has kids. They will need to eat. They will need a roof over her head. And you're right, she will need to remarry. It's a man's world. What else is she going to do? She will remarry another man. But that will be an adulterous relationship, that new marriage. Why? Because while you divorced her in court, your actions in court did not actually break this marriage bond in the sight of God. You're still married to her, and you pimped her out to somebody else for your own benefit. You defiled her. Yes, she had to be remarried. Yes, it's an adulterous marriage. Whose responsibility is that? Whose fault is that? Whose guilt is that? Yours, husband. Poof. Say all the divorced guys who righteously issued a certificate to make it legal. You're an adulterer, says the Lord. Let's be clear that we see that. We have to see that. The guilt, the adulterous guilt is not hers. Or in our world, because it could go either way in our world, the adulterous guilt does not rest on the one who was divorced, be it a man or a woman. But rather, it, it rests on the one who initiated it, who initiated the casting out, who initiated the breaking. The guilt lies with the initiator. Now, that point right there gets complicated. This is another point where I'm going to say, if and as there probably are things we're going to need to talk about, please do come and talk about them because it gets really complicated. 
Who initiated and how can you tell in our modern world? Back then it was super easy. It was only the man. And men got divorced by saying, literally, I divorce you. Get out. And then they could write that down. It was super simple, and it was always meant. You could really, 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 really easily tell who initiated it. But in our modern world, it's really hard to tell. It might not be the person who filed papers at court. It might be in our modern world that if a husband, for instance, wants to divorce his wife, there might be all kinds of advantageous reasons that he doesn't want to be the one to file the papers. It might make him look better. It might make him look like the victim if he can say, she divorced me. She's the one who did it. But wanting that to happen, he might do all kinds of nasty things privately to drive her to it. Deciding, I want out of this. I, I don't want, I, I'm, not, I'm not okay anymore with the vows that I made, with the commitment that I made to have total allegiance to her and her only, her above all things. I don't want that anymore, so I've got to get her to somehow get out of this. How can I drive her to that? How can I make her file papers? We need to be really careful and really wise about how we read those situations. It might not be the one who, in our language, did the divorcing. It might be the one who made the other one do it. So there's a lot there. Obviously, that's very complicated, and we can't cover all the details here. But as an aside, let me give a little summary here. If we take all of the Bible into consideration and put it into our modern world, we are persuaded here that there are two reasons, two legitimate grounds that God approves of on which a person might file paperwork. Jesus is explicit, sexual immorality, some sort of sexual deviancy in marriage. And then, implied here, made more clear by Paul later, a desertion where one says, get out, deserts the covenant, and does not want to fulfill it anymore. Desertion and sexual immorality. Now, there's a lot of questions. We might need to talk about that. And it could very well be that it applies to you very personally. And I would encourage you, please come. I'd be more than happy to talk more about this. But that's a big subject. I've got to close off and attempting to stick to this passage only in this context. Notice, what's the shocking clarification that pops the bubble of the person who thinks, I'm right in God's eyes because I got divorced properly? If you send your spouse away, if you initiate divorce, for any reason other than sexual morality, or we would add in from elsewhere desertion, any reason other than that, here's, here's the, the punchline that, that is hard. You're the one bearing the guilt for breaking the seventh commandment. It's adultery by another, by another means. You were unfaithful to the vows, not her, and not her second husband. Glance quickly at the last sentence there. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is less obvious in English. That also is a passive verb. Commits adultery is passive there also. 
We might put it like, and he becomes an object of adultery. Not of his own fault. Yes, that's an adulterous marriage. But it's not her fault, and it's not his fault. It's your fault. You forced her into it. He's being actually merciful to provide a roof over her head and food for her to eat. You're the guilty party. That was surprising teaching to people in Jesus' day. We read in Matthew 19, the disciples essentially say, then who in the world should even get married? Because they're not even considering the, we could stay married faithfully. <laughs> it was surprising teaching. Now, that could be surprising teaching for us. It might be a little less convicting for us in general than, than what we saw about lust and, and anger because some of us might not be married. Some of us might not be divorced. And so it's kind of a little more theoretical. But this is surprising. And in it, it tells us a lot about how we Christians should be viewing divorce. Christians should look at marriage and see that when God joins a man and a woman, two different, joins them into one, that's meant to be a picture of Christ and his people, two different, joined into one. Man and woman, that's why it's man and woman. One man and one woman, because it's modeling it's always intended to be a pointer. Christ and the church, different, becoming one. And what God has joined together, do not separate. Christians do not act to break that apart. Period. Now, someone else might act to break that apart. Your spouse might. Your spouse might commit some sort of sexual immorality. Your spouse might desert the marriage and say, I don't want this anymore, I'm out, and push you away. You can't, you can't control that person. But as far as it's up to you, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus' teaching, God's intention. Keep covenant faithfully. There is no proper way to be adulterous. It is super, super helpful to marriage to forget that you've even heard the idea of divorce. Because it clears off one of the possibilities. It clears out one of the, the dangerous attractions that I could get free of this and find the grass greener on the other side. It just eliminates the whole idea that there is another side and says, here's where you are, work on this. Super helpful. And it's a backstop to our instincts. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Somebody else may separate it. You can't control that. But we should not initiate. That's the clear teaching of Jesus, his expectation of his people. That's a clarifying call with which we will need some help. So that takes us to the second point. It's the second observation. God's grace 
gives the righteousness we need with regard to marital faithfulness. So God's law, first point, God's grace, here's the second point, gives the righteousness we need with regard to marital faithfulness. Marital faithfulness. For some of us, this whole discussion at this point has been about a ship that already sailed. That's that's fact. Some of us have already divorced our spouses, and it wasn't because your spouse was wrapped up in some sort of sexual morality. It wasn't because your spouse sent you away in some way. You found something in him, her, that was displeasing to you, and you decided you wanted out, and so you did it. You drove it. And maybe you did it nicely. You tried to do it right. Maybe you did it with some sorrow. You give away a lot of assets so as to be you know, the good guy in the situation. But the spouse didn't break the covenant commitment. You did. And Jesus' teaching here condemns you. This is the cold wind clarity. What can make you righteous in God's eyes? Not arguing with Jesus' teaching. No, 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 that, that's not it. That, that doesn't help, because it still is it. Not pretending that you can't remember that that happened, not, not denying it, not adopting some worldly point of view that says, well, he would understand, he'd want me to be happy. He gets me. No. And also, not beating yourself up about it. I know, a, I know some, not a lot, but I know some Christians who have a divorce in their background and it's like you can never get past it. You got the big mark of D on you or maybe seeing this morning's, it actually is an A, it actually is the scarlet letter on you. And it's there for forever and you can't get past it. And so you, you beat yourself up and you hear something like this and you, and you say like, yeah, I am. Woe is me, I am a wretch. That doesn't help either. That doesn't make you righteous in God's eyes. We, we should not argue with Jesus about what the truth is. We shouldn't try to forget it or ignore it or rationalize it or change God's character or change God's teaching or beat ourselves up about it. The only thing that makes you righteous in God's eyes and delivers you to comfort, which is good news and actually delivers you to comfort. The only thing that does that is Jesus. And Jesus indeed really can. This is good news. The first part of this is perhaps a little sharp, but the, the good news is God the Father in great merciful love for you sent his son because of this. He sent one different than you, like you in some ways, but totally different, perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful to the covenant, perfectly faithful to God, obedient fully to him, faithful to you as he came to grab you. Indeed, he saw something displeasing in you, but that didn't drive him away. That's what drew, it, drew him to you. 
And he comes and in faithful covenant love says, that's why I'm here, to grab you, to help you, to bless you, to save you, to draw you to myself, and to carry you and all of your sin onto the cross and into the grave with me to raise you up to new life so that you can walk clean. That's the gospel. And it's the gospel and it's true for adultery. It's the gospel and it's true for divorce. Adultery by a different name. Christ is a faithful redeemer and by trusting him your sin is actually covered and you are clean. Christian, stand in that. There is something that's, that's remarkable, whether it be about divorce or any other. This actually applies to any other grievous sin. What we so often do is we try to say, let me, let me forget about that. Let me put a, a thousand miles and 50 years between me and that, and not, maybe it'll, I'll forget about it. There's something that's really different about going back and saying, like, let me stand in that and say, yep, and the gospel's true, I'm clean. That's freeing. Sweet freedom. Step into the gospel of grace, mourning over your sin, and you will be comforted and joyed. That's the truth. So, if this is past news, if this is the ship's already sailed for you, okay. Okay. Can you say that? Okay. Some of us who are remarried, can you look at your spouse and say, and now this is my spouse. And that's good and right and okay. Bless the Lord. The gospel's true. Those who trust in Christ, clean, righteous in his eyes, righteous in standing before him. Okay. I went through the directory this week and just kind of, not with pencil and paper, but just kind of like kept track of how many people do I think this part of the sermon is going to apply to, as far as I know. More than one. Not a hundred, but more than one. And I want you, in the middle between one and a hundred, you know, the 10, 20, 30 of you, whatever it is, to hear that and really say, it's okay. Not because this isn't true, but because of Jesus. There is great freedom in that. There's great blessing in that. Okay. But beyond that, then, beyond forgiveness for the past, a righteous standing before God we need that, that's good. But beyond that forgiveness, that righteous standing, we of course now, from here on, moving forward, we want to walk out marital faithfulness. He calls us to live out marital faithfulness to, to him and to the vows we made, to the person we made those vows to. We want to walk that out in righteousness here and now. And incidentally, what I'm going to say here is about marriage, obviously, for those who are married or those who might one day be married. But it actually, if you took out the specific context, it's the same thing about how any of us can be faithful in any situation that we find challenging. 
in any situation where we are tempted to walk away from the Lord and walk away from what he calls us to. Same process. So this is about marriage, but it's also about life. We want to walk out righteously. We want to walk out faithfulness to God, obedience to him, and faithfulness to the one we vowed to. And that can be tough because there are going to be things that you don't like in this other person. Newsflash. That's the way it is. Now, this is not going to become a long sermon about how to be married or, or a book or anything about how to be married. There's plenty of that out there. Being more straightforward here, how do you keep faithful in heart and with hands? How do you, in, in heart, not grow embittered and hardened? And how do you, in hands, be, be actively obedient? When facing a situation you do not like, living with a spouse that in some way or another is displeasing to you, what has to happen? Well, like last week, like every week, what has to happen is not that the spouse has to change. Things would be better if he, if she, not that. It's not the circumstances have to change. That has to be different. The pain and the disappointment has to go away then. The pressure has to stop. The sense of loss and grief at watching my best years just wash away as I have to live here with this person I don't love anymore. That's not what has to change, something out there. What has to change is something in here. And I'm not just talking about like more willpower, more determination. Something in here, not out there. Now, again, as an aside... Things out there might be bad and might need to change. See what I'm saying on the other side of my mouth here right now? I'm saying what's out there is not determining my faithfulness. But what's out there might be wrong and need to be brought to the light and need to have the police called. Right? It could be illegal, it could be awful, it could be abusive, it could be all kinds of stuff out there that should be brought to the light. And if that's the case, or even if you kind of like wonder, maybe that's the case, again, please talk to somebody. Me, or, or one of the women in, in our, our church circles who are trained and who talk about this kind of stuff all the time, they would, they would be a great asset. If there's something out there that needs to be brought to light or you even just kind of wonder if maybe it should or not, please talk to somebody about that. That may need to change, but what I'm saying is that that doesn't have to change for me to walk faithful to the Lord and faithful to the vows I made. Something inside of me has to change for that. My, your, inner hope must change. must move off of hoping in the circumstances, hoping in this life, hoping in that person to feed you and give you what you think you need. Move off of that and change. Move over onto hoping in God to feed me and fill me and give me what I need. 
to fill me and, and move me to live for his honor and his glory, not for my own good and my own pleasure. So much has to move from what I'm hoping in and why I'm hoping in it, from the world to God, from the world and self to him. That has to move, Christian. To see you, to see yourself in other words, as not depending on the world to be filled, but as an heir, as a citizen of the kingdom. And is that not true? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of the world. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. To see him as the one you live for, not yourself. And is that not the case? You are, you are small and frail and limited and broken. Living in the middle of a postage stamp here. The life isn't about you, it's about him. That must move from the world to the kingdom of heaven, from self to living for him. I'm about his purposes. In, in other words, what has to happen is the Beatitudes must own you. And they don't. When we are in the middle of marriage, struggling and, and tempted and, and pulled away from faithful following of him and faithful giving of myself away to others, what is certainly the case is that the Beatitudes are gone. And all that Jesus says is true of us and what he's growing us into have left the building. All of these truths sit very lightly on us and our gaze is captured by the world and by people and we think we need that. And you don't. You don't. What we are made for and what we need is him. And that is what we must believe and believe strongly. I read a devotional this last week written by a Puritan, last name Gernal, eons ago. And he said, we must believe it is our duty to believe, and not only to believe, but to believe strongly. And that little catch caught me there. Yeah, that's right. Because who among us would say, I don't know if I believe that God is for me. If you're a Christian, you crossed that bridge a long time ago, you believe God's for you. Believe strongly, he says. That's our duty, not to believe, but to believe strongly that God is for you. And then he goes on to say, and that his mighty power is and will be deployed in every aspect of your life to do you the good that he promised to do you. Is that true? Well, sure. Believe it strongly then. That's your job. It's your duty. Believe that strongly and fight to believe that strongly when all the, all the voices that you're going to hear from out there and even the voice is going to rise up from that little whisper inside of you is going to say like, this is terrible. Curse God and die. No! Believe strongly that everything the Beatitudes say are true and true of you and God is at work in you, that yours is the kingdom of heaven, that you will be comforted as you come to him, that he will fill you with the spirit, that he's shown you an object of mercy, that he's made peace with you and shows you his face and gives you the kingdom, where it concludes, right? The kingdom and the kingdom, all of it's yours. Believe that and believe it strongly. What must happen if you want to live in marriage, and notice the Beatitudes don't say a single thing about marriage. There's nothing about spouse, marriage, Divorce, none of that's in the Beatitudes. But it's all about marriage. 
You can't live in marriage without the Beatitudes. This is the Christian life. Believe that strongly. Fight to believe that. Don't let it slip away. We are moved to faithfulness and we are moved to a life of of commitment, to a life of laying down self and giving it to others, not by how lovely the other one is, but by how lovely Jesus is. We are moved to give away our lives, not because these people give anything back to us, but because he has given us everything. And you know that, but you don't believe it. At least you don't believe it strongly. Or at least I'll say, That's my problem. I believe all that. I'm preaching it, but I don't believe it strongly in those moments when I'm tempted to say, woe is me if I just had different, whether it be a spouse or a different job, if I had a different health, if I had a different economic status, if I had a different, if, if if something out there would change, then I would be okay. But woe is me, it is not the case. In that moment, and I go there all the time, I'm an Eeyore, I go there all the time, and it's unbelief. It's unbelief. Not intellectually, I believe that. I don't believe it strongly. You don't believe it strongly. I talk to lots of people about lots of marriage things. And so often the problem becomes that we end up thinking too much about marriage and far, far too much about whether or not our marriages are making us feel good. And we don't think enough about the Beatitudes and what they are about. Jesus for you. Your life hidden with him in heaven. And the fact that he is coming soon. Think of Colossians 3. And when he comes, your life comes with him. The Beatitudes invite us to lift up our eyes and our hearts. And help us to see him and his grace and his call. And that's what settles us before him. And says, ah okay and it's going to be okay and it's going to be okay and okay and okay actually glorious it settles us before him and enables us to live in the world with the ones that he's brought to us including even a spouse merciful towards that one pure in heart towards that one a peacemaker towards that one Christ-like towards that one loved And therefore able to loyally love. We who have been forgiven are able to forgive. Not forgiven by him or her. By him. Not loved by him or her. By him. Forgiven and loved. We are loving forgivers. Made peace with. We are peacemakers. That's how God's grace comes upon us and helps us to stay faithful in all sorts of hard situations, marriage included. So married Christian, is that your practice in your marriage to fight to strongly believe that God is for you and all of his power is for you to secure for you life. You don't need it from her or from him. To secure for your life so actually you can be faithful and give it away. You're in the middle of a stream. Water flows away. Water comes to. Give. Married Christian, is that your practice to strongly believe the gospel? To strongly believe the Beatitudes? To strongly trust Christ? That's your duty.
That's the Christian life, to believe. It's the path to joy and comfort. It's the good life. Let me pray. Father, help us to believe and to strongly believe. Particularly, Lord, there probably are some here today that are really stressed on that point. So draw near and particularly help them to believe and strongly believe. Some of us probably, this is theoretical, but some of us this is very, very visceral. So draw near, show yourself gracious and merciful. Bless your people, Lord. Help us to follow you faithfully in hope. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.